Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 258, The Rise of King Edward I of Wessex. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. You can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Patty, Kara, and Laura for signing up already. On October 26th, 899, Alfred the Great died. He left behind his wife, Ailswitha, as well as his grown children. I imagine that the loss of Alfred was quite difficult on all of them. It's always hard to lose a family member. But for Edward, the designated heir, what must have that been like? I mean, look at it from Edward's perspective. Edward was probably somewhere in his 20s at this point. He was an athling, and he was the heir to the throne, at least as far as Alfred was concerned. His whole life had been in preparation for this moment. All the tasks and responsibilities handed down to him, all the charters and meetings with eldermen, all the military appointments and time in the field. It was all building to this. But despite all that work, despite the backing of his father, despite doing everything that was required of him, Edward's succession wasn't guaranteed because he wasn't the only claimant to the throne. His cousin, Athelwald Atheling, also had a claim. Athelwald was older than Edward by about 20 years. Furthermore, he was the eldest son of King Athelred, Alfred's older brother. By the rules of primogeniture, he had a legitimate claim. And you could argue that his claim was higher on the line of succession. This whole thing had trouble written all over it. And ultimately, everything would rest on what the Witan chose to do. Would the Witan look for who held the eldest line of the House of Wessex and select Athelwald? Or would it select the heir to the most recent monarch of the House of Wessex and pick Edward? It's not an easy call, and Edward couldn't be sure exactly which way the Witan would go. So that's stressful. Add to that that Edward was a real person, and he had just lost his father. That's hard. Based on the way that Edward was raised, he was probably really close to his dad. They had to be, because much like Alfred, Edward was raised in court, which meant that wherever Alfred went, Edward was there too. This was intended to prepare him for rule, but it also meant that Alfred played a very large role in Edward's life. And now, he was gone. Now, granted, because Edward and Alfred were real people, it's possible that they weren't all that fond of each other. Alfred was powerful, and he showed a certain comfortability with that power. And based on the way he treated Asser, and how he all but kidnapped him because he took a liking to him, it does raise questions of how Alfred behaved in his personal life. Maybe the qualities that made Alfred effective also made him a bit tyrannical with those closest to him. And according to the record... It was Alfred who ultimately made the choice to send Edward's son, Athelstan, to live in Mercia with Edward's sister, Athelflaed. So maybe Alfred was overbearing, and Edward resented that. Or maybe they were close, and actually Edward and Alfred decided what to do with his son together. We genuinely don't know for certain. But, given that Alfred had more potential heirs than simply Edward, 
And considering that we never read of any kind of conflict between Alfred and Edward, my guess is that they were actually quite close. And that's hard, because that means that while Edward was caught in the middle of a political nightmare that could determine the future of his family and his kingdom, he was also mourning the loss of his father. I can't even begin to imagine what that would be like. It was hard enough when Nana died, but if upon her death, the fate of the nation rested on a popularity contest between me and my cousin, and if, rather than mourning her, I was told that I had to campaign for support, I don't know if I could have handled that, especially since it's inevitable that with politics like that, rifts will deepen, and some of my own family and friends would end up standing against me. And then add to that the reality that it could all be for nothing, and if they picked my cousin, I could be ostracized from everyone I know, or worse. The weight of that would be overwhelming, but that's the situation that Edward found himself in. And what happened next wouldn't just impact Edward's life. His mother's position in society, and the future of his young son, Athelstan, the status of his siblings, and any other members of the Alfredian line, all of that was also hanging in the balance since it is unlikely that Athelwald would have been all that kind to the group of people that he likely considered usurpers. So, as he was mourning, Edward was also preparing his next move. And I would bet you anything that as all of this landed at his feet, Edward was missing his father quite a lot, and was probably desperate for his advice on how to handle all of this. And I think it will surprise none of you to learn that the record for what happened next isn't clear. We don't know how the campaigning took place. We don't know whether or not he had to strike deals. We know very little about what was going on at this point. But something to consider when thinking about all the political wrangling that was likely occurring is the reality of power in the Heptarchy. Right now, we're seeing the end of the era of the Heptarchy. But cultures die hard. And what have we learned about powerful kings and the hegemonies they build during this era? When the king dies, the hegemony often dies with him. Alfred was a supremely powerful king. He had brought all the kingdoms south of the Watling Street border under his umbrella. Under his rule, about one-third of Britain was functionally Wessex. But Alfred was now dead. And the way these things usually went... Once the king dies, the sub-kingdoms reassert their independence, or at least try to. Now, unlike Offa and Penda and other hegemonic kings, Alfred doesn't look like he was actually trying to build a hegemony. Instead, he seems to have been working towards a larger goal of Englishness, and seeking to assert that his line had the authority to rule over more than simply the West Saxons. But despite all that work, the question remained as to whether or not this was something that Edward can maintain, whether he would inherit that right. This fact of hegemonic rule also potentially created a weakness in his campaign. What if independence was in play? What if that was a potential wedge that Athelwald could use to curry favors with influential members of society both inside Wessex and outside? Here's something else to consider. Wessex had a history of splitting leadership between multiple heirs. For example, when King Athelwulf died, that was Alfred's father, he split the responsibilities of rule between his two eldest living sons, Athelbald and Athelbert. One ruled Wessex, the other Kent, and they were expected to work together. 
This type of thing happened repeatedly in Wessex, and while it eventually came to an end and the thrones of Kent and Wessex were unified, there still was a tradition of split rule, with one heir serving as a subordinate king to the other heir. And there were no doubt some people who could still remember the days when that was the norm in Wessex. So with that in mind, what if the Witan decided to split the kingdom between Edward and Athelwald? In that situation, Edward was the younger heir, and he was also less senior on the line of succession. So would he be serving as sub-king to Athelwald? That would hardly be a good solution for the Alfredian line, and Edward would just have to look at the behavior of his uncles to see what sort of future awaited him, if it turned out that in the end he was a sub-king to a hostile over-king. Furthermore, this habit of splitting rule gets even more sticky when you consider who was already in power and what their interests were. Edward's older sister, Athelflaed, was married to Athelred, Lord of Mercia. And the ruling couple of Mercia had quite a lot of power of their own. In fact, while the West Saxon sources are very careful to never refer to the couple as anything more than nobles, the Welsh Annals and the Annals of Ulster both refer to them as royalty, as kings and queens of Mercia. Now, Athelred and Athelflaed were both bonded to Alfred, both on a familial level and also as compatriots in battle. So accepting Alfred's overlordship was probably something of a given. But now that Alfred was dead, that might all be in flux. Edward very well might have been asking himself if his big sister and her husband would even accept him as king. What if they wanted to be semi-independent and a client kingdom like the old days? What if they wanted outright independence from Wessex? What if they wanted him to be the client king? If you look through the history of Wessex, there's precedent for any and all of that. It's a crazy situation. And here's the worst part. We don't know precisely how long it took the Witan to weigh their options and come to a decision. But it does look like it took a while. Months, in fact. So it doesn't look like it was an easy matter to be decided. It wasn't until nearly eight months after Alfred died that the Witan's choice was codified and Edward was crowned as King Edward of Wessex. Eight months. That's crazy. And hopefully Edward didn't inherit his father's condition, or else all that stress certainly would have triggered a massive flare. But even after the decision was made, given all the political mess that succession created, and the presence of a rival line, the crowning of Edward needed to be done with proper pomp and religious weight so as to fully secure Edward's claim on the throne. And thanks to the work that Janet Nelson did in tracking down the changing methods of coronation, we can roughly sketch what this event would have looked like. So on the 8th of June, in the year 900, Edward made the journey to Kingston-upon-Thames. It was a location that held a great deal of symbolic importance to the House of Wessex, as it was here that several important agreements were struck, and critically, it was also where many of Edward's forebears had been crowned. Kingston-upon-Thames would function as a concrete demonstration that Edward was continuing in his family's footsteps. It was a place that had been used by his family since at least the reign of Edward's great-grandfather, King Egbert. And when Edward made the journey to Kingston-upon-Thames, he didn't go alone. He would have been joined by the Witan, 
other high-ranked nobles, and also important members of the church. Now, don't underestimate the power of peer pressure. Even if you're one of those who had quiet reservations about Edward, with so many powerful people gathered to celebrate this moment, I imagine it would have had quite an impact and done a great deal to silence you. And then you have how the ritual was actually carried out. Now, the wording of every element of the ordination isn't something we can specifically recreate, but Nelson's analysis of the form and style of 9th through 11th century coronations found several common themes and developments, and that's resulted in a surprising amount of detail in how this ceremony would have been carried out. The first prayer said by the bishop during the ordination was the Omnipotence Sempiterne Deus, and it was drawn from 9th century Carolingian prayers. And this prayer called attention to the heroic figures of the Old Testament. The idea was that the prayer would imbue the king with the best qualities of holy figures of the past. Historian Simon Keynes quotes one passage of that prayer, where the bishop beseeches God to ensure that the king be, quote, made firm with the faithfulness of Abraham, endowed with the meekness of Moses, strengthened with the fortitude of Joshua, raised with the humility of David, and adorned with the wisdom of Solomon, end quote. But what's really interesting about the wording of this type of ceremony isn't necessarily the biblical context, though that is interesting. But instead, it's the political subtext that's buried within the prayer. For example, Keynes points out that among the biblical references, the bishop also prays that the king, quote, be supported by the subjection of both peoples, end quote. And if you're like me, you're wondering who both peoples are. The implication is that there's a division that the coronation seeks to heal, but a division between which peoples? The West Saxons and the Mercians? The Anglo-Saxons and the Danes? The Kentishmen and the West Saxons? The churchmen and the laymen? Which groups are we talking about here? It really could be applied to all sorts of people. And my suspicion is that in the early 9th century, both peoples were probably Kent and Wessex, as their kingdoms had recently been united. But following Alfred's Englishness project, you might be wondering if that term was seen in a new light. And now, the both peoples was the Anglican of Greater Wessex and the Anglican under Danish rule. And if you're thinking that, you're not alone. Keynes thinks it was exactly that perspective, and that this first prayer wasn't just a blessing of the king, but also a blessing, or at least hope, that Edward would defeat the Danes. This wasn't the only prayer said during that ceremony, though. After that blessing, there would be another prayer, called the Sta et Retine, and this prayer included a portion that can only be described as a statement of precedent, establishing why this crowning was occurring. The prayer states that the throne by paternal suggestion would be held by the new king with divine authority. The paternal suggestion portion is particularly significant for a coronation like this one, where it was contested and where the father specifically denoted his son to be the heir. So here we have the bishop essentially stating that Edward wasn't just chosen and endorsed by Alfred, now he was also chosen and endorsed by God. That's the divine authority part at the end of the paternal suggestion. And these prayers, along with the investiture of certain regalia, would be what transformed Edward Atheling into Edward Kinning, 
King Edward of Wessex. But historians like Keynes point to this style of ordination as evidence that Edward was continuing in his father's footsteps. And he wasn't simply intending to be a king of Wessex. He was looking to be a king of the Anglican. And I think Keynes has a really good argument to be made here. Edward was the product of the House of Wessex, which itself was a unification of the West Saxon and Kentish dynasties. But he was also the product of the Mercian royal dynasty through his mother, Ailswitha. And that gave him a royal link to Mercia as well, which gave him somewhat of a royal claim on large swaths of the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. So on a blood level, Edward was well-situated for the task of being the king of the Anglican. And when we look at what Edward did shortly after becoming crowned, we do see hints of a sort of pan-Anglo-Saxon perspective. For example, when he established his court, he ensured that it wasn't exclusively from Greater Wessex. Instead, it included Mercian figures. In fact, one of the most influential members of Edward's court was the Archbishop of Canterbury, Archbishop Plegmund, who was from Mercia. Edward also kept on several Mercian members of court from his father's days, including the wonderfully named Werewolf. So we have the method of his coronation, and we have the composition of Edward's court, both of which suggest that Edward was looking beyond the old divisions of the Heptarchy and towards a larger identity, much like his father had. But where we get the clearest indication of Edward's perspective is actually where we find most of our clear details from this period, in the charters. A close analysis of Edward's charters shows that they were drawn in a rather unique way. They were blending elements we see in West Saxon charters, elements that we see in the Bishop of Winchester's charters, and elements that we see in Mercian charters. Much like Edward's court, the charters that he was issuing reflected a blending of styles from all throughout his domain. But there's one thing that we see coming out of his charters that absolutely seals it for me. In two charters, dated to 901, just one year after Edward's coronation, we see him appearing, not as the King of Wessex, but as Rex Saxonum and Anglorum Saxonum Rex, the King of the Saxons and the King of the Anglo-Saxons. A few charters from 903, just two years later, also refer to Edward as the King of the Anglo-Saxons. And critically in these charters, they mention King Athelwolf, Edward's grandfather, and they refer to him simply as the King of the West Saxons, which implies that Edward was reaching beyond his family's earlier claims of rule to just a single territory, and now he was claiming his right to rule over a broad cultural group. Taken together, I think it's pretty clear that Edward was sending signals that he intended to follow in his father's footsteps and rule over Mercia and Greater Wessex. And based on how he was signing his charters, I think it's also clear that he saw himself as inheriting the right to rule far more than just the people south of Watling Street. He was styling himself as king of the Anglo-Saxons within the first year or two of his rule, and he continued to do so as time went on. That's astounding, but it's also a decision that presented Edward with a couple problems. The first was that his big sister and his battle-hardened brother-in-law were ruling over Mercia, what if they didn't want to recognize Edward as king? What if they decided they would rather be independent? 
What would Edward do if all the lands from Cheshire to Gloucestershire and Oxfordshire, as well as Buckinghamshire and critically London, suddenly broke off from Wessex and reasserted their independence under Athelred and Athelflaed? As we discussed earlier, that was a very real threat, and I suspect that it might have been part of the negotiations that undoubtedly took place prior to Edward's coronation. But whatever was said during the negotiations appears to have worked, because shortly after the coronation, Athelred and Athelflaed appear in charters, and they're described as holding, quote, rulership and power over the race of the Mercians under the aforesaid king, end quote. The aforesaid king, of course, was Edward. So it looks like the bargain they reached was similar to earlier hegemonies that we've seen during the Heptarchy. Athelred and Athelflaed ruled Mercia, but they were still subject to Edward. So problem one was handled. But what about problem two? Namely, about half of the Anglican that Edward was claiming to have dominion over were currently living under Danish rule. The Danes were in control of the northeastern Anglo-Saxon kingdoms, and they divided the lands amongst themselves. Now, these were the same Danes who had given Edward's father a great deal of trouble. They were also the same people who had caused nearly endless havoc during the reigns of his uncles and his grandfather. And granted, the Danish kingdoms were at peace with Wessex right now, but how long would that last? If Edward had learned anything from his time in his father's court, and also from his time in the field of battle, it was that these Danes could and would attack any moment your guard was down. How safe would his people be so long as there were Danish kingdoms on his borders? And besides, he really wouldn't be much of a king of the Anglo-Saxons if half of his people were living under someone else's rule. Furthermore, now was actually kind of a great time to launch an attack. The Danish territories weren't unified. There wasn't a single Dane law. The form and function of their rule was varied, and the largest and most entrenched of their territories, Northumbria, was right now incredibly fractured, and it included multiple independent Anglo-Saxon lords, the most powerful among them being Aidwulf of Bambra. So upon his coronation and the establishment of stable relations with Mercia, I wonder if King Edward was looking towards the Danes. After all, he was young, he'd already proven himself in battle against the mighty army of the Appledore Danes, and he had just recently completed his father's last project, ensuring that the throne remained within his family. So perhaps, upon returning from Kingston-upon-Thames, Edward retired to his hall and discussed plans for war with his council. Meanwhile, far from the halls of power, Athelwald Atheling was likely tending to his bruised ego. And for the most part, we've looked at all of this from Alfred and Edward's perspective. But consider what a blow this would have been for Athelwald. He was the eldest living son on the eldest surviving line of King Athelwulf of Wessex. It was Athelwald who had the strongest claim to the throne. He should be king. It should have been him at Kingston-upon-Thames. But instead of walking through Winchester with his council, he was on the outside. And it was his 20-something-year-old cousin who wore the crown. As salt in the wound you could see how this all played out in a way that would have left Athelwald feeling like he'd been deeply wronged. Alfred had disinherited Athelwald and his brother while they were still too young to even defend themselves before the Witan. 
Later, Alfred stripped the Witan of much of their power, and then replaced the majority of their number with his own hand-picked men. And then he held a council at Langdena, where he had that same hand-picked Witan affirm Athelwald's disinheritance. None of that would have given Athelwald the sense that he'd been given a fair shake, or that justice was properly done. Everything Alfred did telegraphed that he was stacking the deck, and he wasn't even trying to hide it. And then Edward, rather than making it right, compounded the injustice by denying Athelwald the throne yet again, and instead taking it for himself at Kingston-upon-Thames. It's not hard to see how bad this all looked from Athelwald's perspective. But, while Edward and Athelwulf had pulled off their masterstroke, and Edward was sitting on the throne, Athelwald wasn't out of the fight. At least not yet. He still had supporters loyal to him. He just needed to make a stand at a place that would remind everyone who he is. The eldest son and heir to good King Athelred. So Athelwald and his men seized Christchurch, and then they rode hard to nearby Wimborne, the resting place of his father, King Athelred. And they took possession of the royal estate, sealed it, and prepared for a siege. But they didn't go there alone. Shortly before Athelwald launched his war, he had taken a nun as his wife. Now the chronicle remains entirely silent on who this nun was, which is surprising given the level of condemnation it levels at Athelwald for this act, and also considering what a breach of etiquette this was. But Simon Keynes has a theory that I think carries a great deal of merit. If Athelwald was looking to bolster his claim to the throne and establish that he was the rightful heir, if he was looking to establish that the kingdom would be safest under his line, then a child with a highborn wife from the right family could help him secure that and nunneries in this time were full of women from noble families. And if you look at the geography of what's going on here, if you look at the old Roman road that went to Christ Church in Wimborne, the last significant religious house that they would have passed before beginning their campaign would have been Shaftesbury. The abbess of Shaftesbury at this time was a woman named Athel Gifu, and she would have been the ideal match if Athelwald wanted to make a power play for the throne, because she was the daughter of Alfred and Edward's sister. Tellingly, Edward's response to this was swift and severe. The whole army was raised. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can also join us on Twitter. We're at British Podcast. And you can join all our other communities, and you'll find links to all of them in the upper right-hand corner of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.